last week we worked on the conflict with the Pharisees over money, and we got through chapter 11. And the thing we talked about last time was the theme outside and inside, the contrast between the way things looked on the outside versus the way they were on the inside sort of a recurring theme the end of chapter 11. The idea was that the Pharisees are obviously hypocritical and they present themselves one way in public and then there are a bunch of secret things that they don't want people to know that are how they really are. And by the way, this occurred in chapter 11 in the context of a dinner party where a Pharisee had invited Yeshua to dinner. The idea, of course, was we were going to get the standard strange preacher examination, see what this guy was all about. And as I said last time, the answers that Yeshua gave, questions and so forth, indicate that he felt like he'd been insulted. And so it was not teacherly so much as it was rebukes back up in 1153. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So the dinner party broke up, probably with lots of people having indigestion, because it was not a happy ending. And this idea of laying in wait, one of the things I'm reading just coincidentally, which of course is not a kosher word, is I'm in the book of Acts. And where I am is the stoning of Stephen. What happens there is Stephen gets accused of talking blasphemy and winds up getting stoned to death. So this idea of the Pharisees hoping to catch him, the thing that they are hoping to catch him in is something that will let them stone him. This is not a gotcha kind of thing. This is far more serious than that in this society. So now, on to chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples at first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Going back to the little introduction that I did and all of the end of chapter 11 last time, the idea was outside and inside. The outside looked good, the inside looked rotten and corrupt. And when we get to the other side of the chiasm in Luke 16, then the charges of his hypocrisy will be much more pointed. Right now he's talking about them third person. He will eventually talk about them being hypocritical in the first person. Now, one of the things I talked about last time was the curses from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where half of the tribe stand on Mount Ebal and the other half stand on Mount Gerizim, and they read curses out. And all of the curses that are read 
are things that are not done in public. Sleeping with somebody that you're not allowed to sleep with. Putting a stumbling block before the blind. If you put a stumbling block before the blind, the blind doesn't know you did it unless you say something. So from his point of view, it's something that's done in secret. Same thing with moving your boundary markers at night. So all of these curses are things that are done in secret. And what God says is, you have pronounced a curse on this behavior. As you all have heard many times, everything is just words. Everything that you see is just information. God spoke and it came into existence. That's information. The organization that we are is information imposed on matter. All just information. And one of the things that God gave us in the beginning was dominion over the place. So what our voices do is put information out into an information space. So if we are pronouncing curses on certain behavior, those curses are valid and effective. So what happens is when we pronounce a curse on certain kinds of behavior, when somebody engages in that kind of behavior, then bad things can happen to him as a result of that behavior. And the example I give, and I may have said this last time, I'm sure many of you remember early on in the days before it became mandatory to be homosexual, people were always saying, well, if there are laws against sodomy, then these Christian fundamentalists are going to be coming around and looking at everybody's windows, trying to catch them doing stuff. That was sort of the canard that was thrown out about morality laws. Well, the point is, a law is simply a statement of what society does not approve of. It doesn't mean that you actually have to go and do anything about it unless that comes out into the open and becomes flagrant. There was never, as far as I know, anybody running around peeking in windows looking for sodomites. And so when they got rid of the laws, what we wind up having now is in your face all over the place behavior like that. So what those laws did was kept that behavior out of the public square. Still happened. Everybody knew that it still happened, but it was not approved of. So what's changed now is, of course, society now apparently does approve of it. And what's going on here with the leaven of the Pharisees is these things that they are doing in private are going to be revealed. And there's a couple of ways they can be revealed. One way they can be revealed is through the action of these curses that were spoken. One of the things that happens when somebody does a private sin is not necessarily that somebody catches him, but something happens and it gets exposed give you an example. There was a rash of this about 10 or 15 years ago when the internet became popular and laptop computers. You'd have professional people be at a conference and they'd start up their computer and their screen would all of a sudden have pornography on it. 
because they had been looking at pornography and that was the last thing they had looked at and they had closed it and forgotten about it. So people were getting embarrassed in public, not because anybody was checking on them, but because their sins were being brought to the surface. So that's one way that this stuff gets exposed is because the curses that were spoken on Ebal and Gerizim cause things like forgetting to take the pornography off your laptop when you close the lid just seem to happen. That's the way God's world works. Stuff like that just seems to happen and your sins get exposed. Way number two that this will get exposed to the extent that it's not exposed and dealt with in the way I just described is when you stand in front of the great white throne. One of the things that's going to happen is you will give account of everything you did or said. So the idea that, well, nobody knows about this and it'll never be find out. In the first place, things happen and things have a way of being found out. But the other one is God doesn't lose track of any of it. There's a record of it and it will be judged. So sort of wrapping up the outside and inside, up until now, which has been talking about hypocrisy, which is stuff looks good on the outside, but it's rotten on the inside. And what Yeshua is saying here is, don't worry about it. It's all going to come to light. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. All right, we have a mixed metaphor here. Thing one is, as I just said, don't be afraid of men, because the worst they can do is destroy the body, and that's going to happen anyway. Certainly we don't want it to happen prematurely, but that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is after having had your body destroyed, being cast into hell. And the idea here of the five sparrows for two pennies and the hairs on your head are again by way of saying what I said earlier, Everything is recorded. It's sort of like your hard drive. You know, people get ahead of your hard drive on your computer and you think you've erased it. Actually, you haven't, unless you do. What do I mean? If you have a file and you delete that file, the file is not erased. What has happened is the entry for that file in a file table has been removed. So you can no longer find it but the actual content of the file still exists on your hard drive. So a forensic analysis of your hard drive can still find it. Your life is that way. You may think that you've forgotten something, you may think that you've deleted something, 
but it's still there. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are paranoid, there are programs that you can download from the internet which will go out to all of the unused space and overwrite it with zeros and ones at random so that you have truly erased something. So if you've got anything you're feeling guilty about, get one of those programs and you can set them up so they just wipe the empty space so that those places you think you've erased are in fact erased. Anyway, so then we have a metaphor switch. So first thing he says is nothing is lost and that you should pay attention to and be afraid of the one who has the ability to deal with you after physical death. And then in verse 7, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. That's sort of a shift in, and the reason I say it's a shift, if the fear not part of it was not there, what we're talking about, remember, is eternal records. So if God keeps track of the sparrows, then he also keeps track of your eternal record. So in the context of be afraid of the one who can deal with you after death, what that saying is your record is always going to be there. The fear not part is what makes it sort of a shift. What he's saying there is you don't need to fear the one who can deal with you after death. Who's he talking to? His disciples. And one assumes that his disciples are believers. So you can also look at it that way. Is don't be afraid of the one who can deal with you after death. Parenthesis, you are my disciples and I will care for you. All the way down to verse 8. I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So I see that as being a continuation of the fear not in verse 7. Comment was sort of a variation of what we said earlier about secret sins. Truth will always come out. Truth then is the basis of justice which I agree, if you are not a hypocrite, then everything about you is in the open. I say that metaphorically. I mean, all of us have private stuff in our lives that we don't want to share with anybody, but it's not bad or hypocritical, it's just private. So if you're not a hypocrite, then in fact you're living in truth and you need not fear justice. The point is... Do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. Down to verse 8. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. So we're talking about the fear of man here. And what he's saying is, you need not fear what men think or do of you, you really need to fear what God thinks or does. And what I'm saying here in verse 8 is part of that is you need to acknowledge God before men and then you have nothing to fear 
before God, who is the one who has the ultimate power over you. The acknowledgement goes clear back to verse 4. Because the only reason you wouldn't acknowledge him is fear of man. So verse 4, we're talking about don't be afraid of men who can only kill the body. And as a consequence, what flows from that is verse 8, which means you must acknowledge me before men. And if you do, I will acknowledge you in heaven. And if you don't, I won't. Verse 10, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And this, of course, is the famous uh, blasphemy against the Spirit, which can't be forgiven. What I think that means is there is legitimate reason to doubt that Yeshua is God. There is no legitimate reason to doubt that the Spirit is the Spirit of God. You can be wrong about me, and that can be forgiven. But you can't be wrong about God and have it forgiven. Comment was, and that comforts us with the Jewish brethren, they have what they believe are good reasons to think that this guy Jesus is not God. And I am of the opinion that when God explains it to them properly, they will come right around because it is not the case that they are against God. It's they don't believe that this guy Jesus is the one. And what Yeshua is saying here is that's forgivable. The thing that's not forgivable is to deny God. Verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I'm reading this in the context of reading Stephen stoning in Acts. Stephen speaks by the Holy Spirit. He takes them to the fact that you guys are all hard-hearted and you killed the Son of God and you shouldn't have done that. And they are enraged and stoning. And as he's being stoned, he says, I see heavens open up and I see the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father. And then he says, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. So I would suggest to you that Stephen is probably... Okay, he wasn't really probably very happy with the process of getting stoned, but the way it comes in the book of Acts, it, it's sort of like an old New Yorker cartoon. And there's the medieval setting where all these people are standing around and somebody's being burned at the stake, Joan of Arc in this case. And as they're standing there, the heavens open up and a ray of light shines down on her and the guys look, oh gee, did we screw this up? Sort of what happened with Stephen. That's true. Paul was a witness and it took him a while before he figured it out. Stephen was the one that saw the heavens open. Everybody else did not. In the New Yorker cartoon, the heavens opened up so everybody could see them. So we're all the way down to verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, 
Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told him a parable. All right, so first off, I got no idea what's going on with this guy, but Yeshua apparently does. You all understand the rules of inheritance in Hebrew society. The eldest son got a double portion, and he then became the head of the family, and the extra resources he had were so that he could fulfill that role. Apparently, one of the things that's going on here is the eldest, if you will, is keeping the family farm together, getting everybody together on the family farm, and we're going to work the family farm the same way we did when dad was alive. Younger brother doesn't like that idea. Younger brother is not necessarily upset with only getting a single portion as opposed to a double portion, but he wants his portion. In other words, I want my little section of land. And older brother, who's the head of the family, is saying something to the effect of, wait a minute, the whole family gets wealthier if we have a big plot and work it together than if we have a whole bunch of small plots and work them individually. Economically, big brother is correct. Little brother is not happy with that decision. So that's, I think, what's going on. And what Yeshua says first off is, why are you asking me? I got no authority here. If you got a problem here, you need to go to the Bet Din, somebody who has actual secular authority. I don't. But then the second thing he says is, don't get too wound up in earthly possessions. Now, I read that as being somewhat important in the context that little brother is listening to the teaching. Little brother has come there because of his teaching and he's listening to the teaching. And so what Yeshua is gently saying is, I am inferring, uh, maybe big brother has got the right idea here. The message is, don't get tied up with possessions. And again, nothing wrong with possessions. It's only when possessions have you as opposed to you having possessions. On to verse 16 now. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, now the place that should take you is to Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11:26, which we can assume the people there would have been familiar with. So Proverbs 11:26, the people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. So the idea in the parable is this guy has got a massive bumper crop, so big 
that the normal silo won't hold it and he's got to build bigger silos. What he's doing then is he is holding this grain back from the market. And he is going to use it over a period of years to support himself, selling it little by little as he needs it. So what I'm suggesting to you Yeshua is doing is telling a parable on Proverbs 11.26 that everybody would have understood. The idea here is when you have a bumper crop, sell it, take it to market because that's what you were given it for. And the fact that this guy is hoarding his grain is in direct contradiction to the wisdom of Proverbs. And what does God say in verse 20? You fool, which is to say, I gave you a proverb that explains how to deal with a bumper crop. You're foolish if you don't behave that way. Selling the grain does not deprive him because he expects to make a profit. He expects to get compensated fairly for his grain. He's already a rich man, and he will get richer because of the bumper crop. That's all benign. Now, there's a second element to this. The first element, of course, is the Proverbs 11.26 element of it. But the second element is this guy is checking out of life. What he's going to do is he's going to take his land out of production, He's going to sit on his blessed assurance. He is simply going to enjoy himself for a long time. That is not a good thing because, A, as I say, he's taken the land out of production, which means not only is the bumper crop withheld from market, future crops are never going to go to the market because he's not going to plant them. But the idea of sitting around on your blessed assurance with your hands over your tummy for the rest of your life, what the proverb is saying is God's going to look at you and say, huh, you're done with life? Sounds good to me. You're done with life. And off you go. Let's talk about that because it's a good observation. The comment was that one of the things that happens in especially old English movies, is you have somebody who accumulates wealth and land, builds a big house and all that, and then his children just sort of live a life of idleness all their lives. Two things about that. Thing one is that's what the Jubilee is intended to remedy. Yovel. Because every 50 years, all debts are forgiven, and land goes back to its original owners. And land is the ultimate source of wealth. So what happens very shortly, and it happens all the time, and it is the clever ones and the ruthless ones wind up running the table, and they have the big mansions and all that kind of stuff. And God says every 50 years, you need to reset. God doesn't say to the rich, you have got to go back and give away your wealth. All you have to give back is your land and your slaves. And you got to start that process over. The clever ones are still going to wind up wealthy and so forth. So God doesn't redistribute anything. He simply says, 
if you have made really stupid investments and you've done really stupid things and you've lost your land and you've lost your patrimony, every 50 years there's a reset. That's one way God handles it. Now, follow on to what you said. The passing on of wealth from generation to generation. What typically happens, not always, but typically, often enough that it's a thing, First generation builds the wealth, standard oil, any of those places. Second generation lives off of that wealth and lives well. Third generation loses the wealth and goes back to poverty and it starts all over again. The point is, what typically happens is the wealth lasts for about three generations or about 50 years and then the third and fourth generation wind up having to work again. So Luke 12, 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So this rich man has been declared by God and Yeshua to be a fool which is to say he is laying up wealth in the wrong place. In that culture, everybody would have known about Proverbs 11.26 and would have recognized that this guy's attitude is foolish, as does Yeshua. The whole point is, if you are going to be a fool with respect to money, you are not laying up treasure for yourself where it really matters. You're not rich towards God. You're a fool. So, 22. And he said to his disciples, notice he's still talking to his disciples. Talk to disciples. Talk to the guy who wanted his share of the inheritance. Now he's back talking to his disciples. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, which you will put on. For life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? This is all in the context of how do you manage wealth and possessions. Started back with the guy who wanted his share of the inheritance. And Yeshua said, having possessions is okay, but possessions shouldn't have you. And now we're talking about worrying and striving. And what he's saying here is pay attention to what God wants you to be doing and God will take care of you. Don't get me wrong, sitting on your blessed assurance and not doing anything will guarantee that you'll starve. You're expected to work, but you're not expected to strive and be worried about things. For him, adding an hour to the span of your life is no big deal. But it's not something you can do. And again, going back to our rich fool who has the barns, he's got everything set, everything laid up, enough for many years, and God just looks at him and says, Fool, 
one of the things that you cannot lay up is extra lifetime. So you're done, and out he comes. Verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? find it very interesting. Solomon is always referred to in sort of a backhanded way. God does everything better than Solomon does, of course, but Solomon is always mentioned backhanded way. The point that is being made here is one would think that the grass was of minimal importance because it's just something we cut off with a lawnmower and throw into the oven. And he's saying, you're far more valuable than that, so don't worry. Don't be afraid. Verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The idea is if you are working for God, God will make sure that you get taken care of. Now, it may not be taken care of in the way you think that you ought to be taken care of, but he'll take care of you. It's always one of the difficulties is because all of us think we're worth far more than other people think we're worth. I certainly am. So the idea of I am not being compensated nearly as well as I deserve is sort of a big deal. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now notice that we've shifted. Remember I said earlier that every 50 years the land goes back to its original owners. The land is the source of wealth. Everything ultimately comes from the land. So what Yeshua is talking about here is stuff. Food, clothing, all that kind of stuff. And what he says is, what I'm going to do is give you the kingdom. That is the equivalent of sending you back to the land. That's the source of all the wealth. If you're in the kingdom, you have the source of wealth, just like every 50 years you get the land back, which is your source of wealth. So having the kingdom is more valuable than transitory stuff like food and clothing and shelter and so forth. 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, all of this has been talking in terms of possessions. The point of all these vignettes is the rich fool and the guy that wants his inheritance is consumed with the idea of possessions, stuff, things in the world here. And what Yeshua is saying is don't worry about that because where your treasure is is where your heart is. So if your treasure is here on earth, that's where your heart is. If your treasure is in heaven, that's where your heart is. And if your heart is there, then you get the kingdom which then has the things of the earth follow.
Shama 